Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for God is good, and God's steadfast love endures forever. Let us worship the Lord our God. cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. God 
mighty king, lover of justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. God, you brought light out of darkness on the first day of creation. We praise you for that light which shines in our lives and through the world. We praise you for the mysteries of faith seen on the mountaintop in the vision of Moses and Elijah. We thank you for the light we see on our own mountaintops when the shining love of Christ's face seems close and we are enfolded in his glory. Open our hearts to the transfiguring power of that light. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Grace to you and peace, and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia both of those of us gathered here in this sanctuary, as well as everyone worshiping in other locations. We are indeed glad and grateful to gather in the name of the Lord. And because it is in Christ's name that we have gathered, that means that our word of welcome is one that we extend with no qualifiers whatsoever attached to it. Our word of welcome comes from Jesus Christ, who calls all and who welcomes all to this place. We would ask everyone, members and guests alike, if you would be so kind as to sign your name to the friendship pad, which should be just on the inside edge of your pew. If you will sign your name and send it down and back again, we'll have the advantage of each other's names. And do your ushers a favor, and the last person to look at it, rip, rip the sheet off and lay it on top. It will make it easy for them uh, so that they can clean up more easily. We would also be delighted if you would join us for a time of fellowship at the conclusion of this service in Old Buttonwood Hall, which is just out this door to my right and down a very short ramp. There you will find a special a special celebration. Barbara, am I allowed to say which birthday it is? We are celebrating Barbara's 75th birthday, and her friends have put together a wonderful fellowship hour, so please come to Old Buttonwood Hall and wish Barbara a happy 75th birthday. I think we'll sing happy birthday to you in there this time. Very good. <laughs> Let me highlight a few other announcements from the announcements portion of your bulletin for your particular attention in the weeks to come. The first is to highlight that this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday and we will be offering two services of worship to mark the occasion. The first will be at noon, and the second will be at 7.30. The services are very similar, but there will be a quartet at noon and a full choir at 7.30 in the evening. We also note that um, today is marks the last Sunday before Lent begins, and if you are nostalgic for a one great hour of sharing fish bank, we have them to share. So we will be happy to provide you with a one great hour of sharing fish bank and also on Easter Sunday to receive our one great hour of sharing offerings from the congregation. I would like to note as well that we are looking ahead to a new members class. That class will likely be in March. I've heard from several of you about your interests. So for those of you I've not heard from that would like to join the church, shoot me a note or give me a call in my office in the next week or so so that I may include you in the scheduling for that new members class, which we'll, we will enjoy together sometime in March. And finally, uh, one other item, if you are looking for ways to give related to disaster relief for Turkey and Syria, you will find there is a slide on our church website that features Presbyterian disaster assistance. Just click on that, it will take you to the giving page for it, and you may choose from a pull-down menu to benefit uh, Turkey and Syria, and also to learn about the efforts of our denomination through Presbyterian disaster assistance in order to, uh, in order to assist with that. Finally, on the back side of your bulletin, you will see that there is a flyer that highlights two things upcoming. One is this afternoon at 4 o'clock, back here in the sanctuary, Callie will be offering Love is in the Air, a jazz concert. I'm very excited. You moved. <laughs> Last week you were over there. <laughs> Callie will be singing for us at 4 o'clock. Tickets are $25 at the door. Um, and you'll note as well a Lenten discussion uh, upcoming that we'll be doing for the weeks of Lent. With all of these things noted, before we move to our confession, we have a moment for history from our commemorations committee. Fran?
Good morning. I'm Fran Kramer, and I'm here this morning as a member of the Commemoration Committee to give a preview of what is being planned to observe the 325th anniversary of the founding of the First Presbyterian Church. The Commemoration Committee has begun its work, and while not all of the details are yet finalized, we want you to know where we are. A new book on the art and architecture of First Church will be available later this spring. On Trinity Sunday, which is June 4th, the service will be followed by a special reception in Old Buttonwood Hall, and at one o'clock, we will be returning to the sanctuary for a primer and a short history of our wonderful organ by Andrew Sims. On September 21st, we will host an event at the Presbyterian Historical Society that will be preceded by a garden reception. Dr. Heath Carter from Princeton Seminary will speak about how does the Presbyterian Church learn from the past in charting its path faithfully to the future. During October, the committee will sponsor two programs, one on First Church in the Community and the other on First Church and Social Change. The observance of our 325th anniversary will culminate with a very special service on All Saints Sunday, which is November 5th. That service will be followed by a very special reception. We will make a time capsule that the children will fill with drawings and stories about their experiences here. The time capsule will then be sealed and reopened when the 350th anniversary is celebrated. Guest preachers are being lined up for various Sundays, and there will be upcoming Minutes for History, where you will learn fascinating stories and many more details about this church's history and the coming events. Commemoration Committee members are William Leonard, Karen Marston, Owen Robbins, Alan Skimmel, Michael Smith, and myself. Thank you. Even when we stand in the bright light of Christ's halo, we turn away into shadow, afraid to follow the clarity of his path. Let us confess the sin of this turning away, first together in the prayer of confession, and then in the silence of our own hearts. Let us pray. Holy God, so often we encounter your holiness in glimpses and shadows. Sometimes, though, we come face to face with your transforming power. Sometimes the truth of your reality shines through our inability to see. It is easy to want to linger in such moments, to rest in the assurance of what seems suddenly obvious, that much of life requires us to live trusting in promises we cannot always see. Forgive our doubts in the moments we cannot remember your transcendent holiness. Reassure us in the moments when we cannot remember your nearness. Remind us always that we are your beloved, called and chosen to be bringers of your grace to all the world. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Christ is our way, our truth, our life, our strength, our feast, 
our light. In that light, forgiveness shines. Believe the promise of the gospel. Today's first lesson comes from the core of the Hebrew Bible, which we have come to know as the Old Testament. Listen for God's word to us. Reading from Exodus 24, verses 12 through 18. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there. And I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses set out with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. To the elders he said, Wait here for us until we come to you again, for Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute may go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire, on the top of the mountain, in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud 
and went up on the mountain. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. The second lesson is from the second epistle of Peter, reading from the first chapter. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we had been eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, my beloved with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice come from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic message more fully confirmed. You will do well to be attentive to this as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. First of all, you must understand this, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by human will, but men and women moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This ends the lesson. Our gospel lesson comes to us from the 17th chapter of Matthew, reading there the first 10 verses. Listen to the word of God. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun and his clouds became bright as light. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good to be here. If you wish, I will set up three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen. To him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they had raised their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. When they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about this vision until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. There are moments in our lives with which we may warm ourselves 
in the moments that blow a cold chill through our bones. These luminous moments are generally fleeting and few. They are perhaps markers of our deepest seasons. When you pan back across your life in your mind's eye, surely some moments stand out to you. Perhaps some moments cause a catch in your throat. We need such moments of light to guide us when we are in the valley of the shadow. But I'm not sure we generally know when they are happening that they will become such luminous moments. I, I can count on one hand the number of moments in my life that have significance that I knew were significant while they were happening. But aren't those the times when we wish we could make time stand still? I wonder if that was what was going on for Peter. The way the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell the story of Jesus' life is structured around a pivot point. That pivot point is when Jesus begins the journey to Jerusalem. Because unlike in John's gospel, which, where Jesus' ministry lasts for three years and he comes and goes freely from Jerusalem throughout that time, in Matthew, Jesus' ministry is one year and he makes only one trip to Jerusalem and it ends at the cross. So the road to Jerusalem was a road no one wanted him to walk. It was a road perhaps he did not want to walk. Throughout Matthew's Gospel, indeed throughout the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus repeatedly predicted his suffering and death. So we know well that the road to Jerusalem is one marked by suffering. And just after one of Jesus' predictions of what was to come, we encounter this story of the transfiguration. It is a brief shining moment, luminous, fleeting, but powerful. No wonder Peter wanted to put up tents and stay a while. Knowing what was coming, who wouldn't want time to stand still? Who wouldn't want to stay on the top of that mountain? You heard the story. Jesus took three of his disciples, maybe his favorites, away to the high mountain. And when they were there, he was transfigured. And appearing with, with him were Moses and Elijah. And the three chatted a while. Apparently, this isn't one of the moments we don't know is significant until it is done. It is a significant moment in the moment. And I will readily grant that when it comes to clouds of light and faces shining like the sun, we get into the territory of a pretty deep mystery. I, I suspect sometimes it is more comfortable for Presbyterian types to speak about the ethics of Jesus than the mysteries of faith. Those ethics may challenge our way of life. They may demand something from us that makes us better people or enables us to live such that when we encounter others, we show something of the grace of God. But when it comes to light suddenly shining and all of that, well, that is a different challenge. That challenges our imagination. And we haven't even gotten to Moses and Elijah yet. Speaking of Moses and Elijah, our new Revised Standard Version of the Bible, that's what's in the racks on your pews, generally does a fine job of capturing the, the feeling, the spirit of a text, but it misses the mark on this particular story. There's a short phrase, kai idu in the Greek, which translates literally, and behold. However, the translation, and behold, doesn't really capture the intensity that the language suggests, so the NRSV translation committee translated instead suddenly, which is moderately better, but uh, one Hebrew professor that I know 
whom I will allow the dignity of anonymity in this moment, makes the case that Kai Idu cannot be accurately translated in the absence of expletives. So the polite, suddenly, there appeared with him Moses and Elijah, should correctly be read, Kai Idu, it's Moses and Elijah. That's an important clue. It tells us this moment is significant in the moment. Not only is it a vision of shining radiance, it is the very manifestation of the law and the prophets, the heart of Hebrew faith. Moses and Elijah are the bringer of the law and the greatest of the prophets, respectively. Jesus' kingdom preaching, particularly in Matthew's gospel, is rooted and grounded in the law and the prophets. And so his kingdom message would be meaningless without, outside of God's faithfulness to God's promises. So when the three of them are together, this is a moment that is the essence of all moments. It is a moment when time folds back in upon itself. It is a moment when God allows sacred kairos to slip into the ordinary chronos. The eternal, eternal interrupts the temporal. This is a key moment. Indeed, so much so that the late Edward Schweitzer concluded that the transfiguration is God's answer to the announcement of the passion. To Jesus' prediction that he will suffer and die, God draws him to a high mountain with his disciples, and there, surrounding Jesus with the law and the prophets, the markers of Israel's covenant life together, God repeats the words of Jesus' baptism and adds, listen to him. It is a moment of clarity. It is a moment of vision wherein God's purposes are once more pressed upon the minds of the disciples, almost, it seems, to remind them of the promises that will carry them through the coming days, the difficult coming days. This text stretches our imaginations, as well it should. This portion that we read today follows a literary pattern of the Bible known as apocalyptic, which is commonly associated with the book of Revelation. Indeed, the word apocalypse simply means revelation. There are other apocalyptic texts throughout the Bible, and what they all share in common is that they reveal something that is hidden from ordinary sight, unable to be seen except through the lens of faith. Tom Long writes, since God's activity is hidden from normal human sight, apocalyptic texts seek to provide extraordinary vision by pulling back the heavenly shroud to reveal, if only for an instant, the incognito activity of God woven undetected into the fabric of human history and disguised in the ordinariness of life. Transfiguration for just a moment, with only a glimpse, the disciples see the glory of Jesus before walking down that long, lonely road to Jerusalem. Who wouldn't want to make time stand still? Who wouldn't want to stay? on top of that mountain. The trouble with mountaintop experiences is that ultimately there is no avoiding coming down the mountain, as cliched as that will surely seem. No sooner does Peter offer to build tabernacles for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah than the vision is over. Jesus and his friends set off with Jesus uttering those strange words about telling no one of what they had just seen. And one has to wonder why the gag order, what's up with the secrecy in this moment. Now some scholars suggest that what's going on is that Jesus hasn't, done pre hasn't finished preaching his kingdom message and the publicity of such an event, the fantasticness of such an event, would overshadow his preaching itself. And I suppose that's possible. But I am more convinced that Jesus was concerned that the disciples, or anyone else for that matter, might misunderstand the gospel 
by seeing only a piece of it, only a part of the story. Because as magnificent as the moment of the transfiguration is, it is still nonetheless only a part of the story. It's God's answer to the passion, to be sure, but the passion, that season of suffering that Jesus endures, is also part of the story, an important part of the story, an unavoidable part of the story. Coming down the mountain, Jesus tells his disciples to say nothing of these things until the whole story is told. Our whole story cannot be told on the top of a mountain. That's the reality with which we live. It's such a truism that to recite it seems passé. But let's remember that cliches become precisely so because they are repeated, and they are repeated because they are so often true. And perhaps the story of faith shouldn't be told only on mountaintops. Perhaps the grace of God only breaks through to us in the valleys, or more accurately, perhaps we only have eyes to see the grace of God when the grace of God is most needed. What is the good of following a Messiah whom we know only as experiencing glory? What could such a Messiah say to our lives? What hope could such a Messiah offer to our deepest pain? I've heard of it. Sorry you're going through that. In Jesus Christ, God enters the fullness of human experience, replete with joy and suffering alike. Because God knows human suffering in the person of Jesus Christ, we know that we are never alone. Indeed, when in the Apostles' Creed we assert that Jesus descended into hell, we know that there is nowhere that God would not go for the love of us, because there is nowhere God did not go for the love of us. And between the mountaintops of transfiguration and resurrection, there lies this long valley of the passion. And between today and Easter, there lies that long valley of Lent. And the long valley of Lent is a reminder of what it means to say that God is with us. During those long valley moments of life, we have these moments, we encounter them in the grace of God, these sustaining moments that remind us of who we are and what we're about. And surely those are the moments that carry us through the rest of the slog of things. And perhaps they are moments that we share together here when God's reality breaks through into our worship, I believe it becomes sacramental, uniting I and thou, calling us together in the unity of God. You know, it's a rough paraphrase, but Calvin said that when we gather at this table, we are swept up to the heavenly banquet where we are in the real presence of Christ. And when we lament leaving the mountaintop to return to the valley, Christ promises to be with us always. We aren't swept up into these moments in order that we may reside in them. We worship so that we may carry God's ultimate reality back into the here and now, back where God's presence is needed, back where the whole story needs to be heard. God's story of love and redemption and human companionship cannot be told only in glory. In her story, Barn Raising, Anne Lamott writes of a friend of hers whose child was diagnosed at nine months with cystic fibrosis. She remembered, one day though, I had a vision of the disaster being a gigantic canvas on which had been painted this exquisitely beautiful, heartbreaking picture, and we all wanted to take a corner or stand by side by side and lift it together so that the parents didn't have to carry the whole thing themselves. I saw that the parents did, in fact, have to carry almost the whole picture by themselves, 
but I also envisioned an Amish barn raising. I saw that the people who loved them could, by showing up, build a marvelous barn of sorts around the family. She went on describing the good days and the tensions that surrounded this family and the friends who walked alongside them before finally recalling an evening when she was out watching an eclipse with the girl's mother. She concluded, I didn't know what to say at first watching the girl go chasing after the big kids coughing, except that we, their friends, all know that the rain and the wind will come and they will be cold. And oh God, will they be cold. But then we will come too, I said, and there will be shelter. Real life requires us to acknowledge the whole story. The sadness and the joy of it Realities that remain on constant display for us as we vacillate between moments of light that warm us through and sometimes difficult truths that we cannot escape. As we live a life where disasters do come, both disasters of our own making and those which are unavoidable. In all of these moments, there are barns that need to be raised. There are checks that will need to be written. There are meals that will need to be cooked and to delivered. We will need care even as we give care. But through it all, through the fullness of life in the whole story, our faithful God's love remains. A love which can carry us from the valley back to the mountaintop in the moment when it is most needed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
as the sun slowly moves from east to west and brings the dawn across the globe, people of faith rise to speak the words of the church's creed in their own languages. Let us, too, say what we believe. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. As followers of the one who is the light of the world, let us make our offerings of time, treasure, and talent so that we, the church, may bring his light to neighbor, to stranger, to friend, and to enemy. You may bring your offering forward now or after the service to put in the place, or you may make your gift online.
God, receive our gifts, honor them, and use them in the work of the transformation of the world. Amen. You may be seated. Let us pray together. In the stillness of Sabbath, O oh God, calm our hearts and minds so that we may feel your presence here. May we breathe in your spirit and may it fill us with life and meaning. We thank you for mountaintop experiences in our lives, times when we see clearly the light of Christ shining in the world, in the faces of those we love, in the joyful experiences of what it means to be human. We are grateful for the sun's rising, for the companionship of family and friends, for the beauty of the early snowdrops and the birds returning to morning song, for the community of this church. Gracious God, you have given us so much, the world as our home, bread to eat and wine to drink, herbs and medicines for healing, the nourishing joy of song and dance and poetry and art. Good work to do. We are thankful each day as we rise and each evening as we sleep. When we come down from the mountaintops, we must walk into the valleys, valleys of pain and fear, disease and hunger, valleys where there is violence, loss, death, bereavement, injustice. In these valleys, we face deep pain as the human family, the unimaginable loss of life, in an earthquake in Syria and Turkey. The unimaginable and seemingly unending violence that results from uncontrolled use of guns. The unimaginable poison of chemicals that spill from a train wreck and silently infect the air and water putting human and animal life at risk. The unimaginable horror of war as it grinds on in Ukraine, taking life and homeland and hope. Dear God, we seem not to know how to stop this pain, but we ask, that this day, each one of us find one step to take, no matter how faltering, one action to take, no matter how small, to bring justice out of injustice. And as we take these small steps, we pray for those who are hurt, or oppressed, those who do not feel fully part of the human family, those who begin and end their days hungry or cold or sick or in mourning or living on the street or suffering violence. We place all of these, our neighbors, in your presence and pray for them.
We know that you are the one who exalts every valley and has the power to heal all wounds. Heal the wounds of the world, dear God. May the healing light of Christ's radiant presence transfigure and transform us so that we too are radiant with Christ's love and can transform the world. May Christ be at the center of our minds and hearts, at the center of our thoughts and words, at the center of our joy and pain, at the center of our journeys. May Christ be our guide and our priest, for it is in his name and with the words that he taught us that we pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.
the good news about the organ is we're already on track to get it fixed. And it will be done very soon, we hope. Stay tuned. Anytime I am tempted to define life only by its luminous moments, I come back to an old favorite quote of mine. I've shared it with you many times before. It goes like this. Listen to your life. In the boredom and the pain of it, no less than in the excitement and gladness, touch, taste, and smell your way to its holy and hidden heart, because in the last analysis, all moments are key moments, and life itself is grace. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace, both this day and forevermore. Amen.